The term woke has been appropriated, turned against its original meaning, and is now being used every day to diminish those people who popularized it. With roots dating back to the 1960s civil rights movement, the term woke was an original expression within the African-American community, a sort of insider phrase that showed belonging, demonstrated shared understanding, and proliferated important ideas within the community that was experiencing oppression, repression, violence, and marginalization. To stay woke meant to stay conscious, aware, and vigilant of the ways in which the system and its power holders were maintaining the dominant paradigm. But today, white conservatives in modern America especially have taken the term woke and turned it against its original meaning, a sort of slanderous rallying cry. Now, woke acts as an emblem of white backlash against progressive ideas. What can behavioral science teach us about how and why woke backlash is happening today? Is there really a historical pattern playing out before our very eyes? From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. To discuss the subtle science behind woke backlash, why it's happening, and how a historical understanding of group and social behaviors can give us clues about why we're really seeing such strong reactions to these modern presses for social justice, we're joined today by N. Chloe Nwangu. Chloe is a behavioral strategist, brand visibility expert, and a former international conflict mediator. She's known as the brand scientist. Today, as the director of Nobi Works, a brand visibility consultancy, Chloe leverages science and strategic branding to help under-recognized brands become impossible to ignore. She's advised everyone from small businesses to small island nations, and even the first refugee delegation to the United Nations. Chloe, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness, that intro uh, <laughs> made me feel really uh, important in a, in, an, in a way I hadn't before. So thank you so much for that lovely intro. Well, it's the least we can do but to roll out the red carpet for you, Chloe. And I want to start before we jump into this idea of woke backlash, which will be a center part uh, or centerpiece, I should say, of, of our conversation from a uh, behavioral um, kind of point of view that you bring to a conversation like this. I want to introduce our listeners to what may be some new language. And I also want to introduce it to challenge myself to use it in this conversation and moving forward, Chloe, because you've been recently putting forth a quote unquote new story in the world through the Harvard Business Review, through a great article that you wrote about how we ought to start referring to socially marginalized people. Rather than saying underrepresented, you contend that it would, it's not only more accurate but a more constructive and productive alternative to start to say under-recognized. Let's start there. So first, why is under-recognized a more accurate and more constructive or proactive term when we're talking about historically marginalized people and their experience? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And it has a bunch of layers. So let me let me start maybe from surface and then get deep. <laughs> um so I think the first thing that I would say about underrecognized versus underrepresented is that underrepresentation is a symptom of the problem, right? So so when we look at the the sort of behaviors that lead up to underrepresentation happening, right? We see that along the way the core behavior that's taking place is an underrecognition of of contributions and um, really folks from certain kinds of communities, right? Just an overlooking of their of their work, their worth, and so forth, right? Um, and this this sort of tendency to overlook has actually been empirically demonstrated um, in a number of studies that um, come together to 
describe what I call uh, visibility biases, right? So that here's another definition. Um, and so visibility biases are the term that I've given the cause of underrecognition, right? They are a category of cognitive bias. And they talk about the ways in which we've all been conditioned to overlook certain kinds of people and experiences, right? And there are a number of visibility biases. We'll probably talk about them later on, right? But these biases sort of are the lens through which we all see the world. They're the default, right? And so it's not necessarily malicious when somebody overlooks a peer's uh, contributions, let's say, um, when that person is unrecognized, it's not necessarily malicious, but it is almost always happening. Um, and without direct intervention or without that person being aware that there is an underrecognition issue, they don't actually act on it. So that's sort of the first layer that I would say. Yeah. Let, let's break that down a little bit because there's so much good stuff in there, Chloe, and it, this is all going to set a foundation for our continuing conversation today. So the difference that I'm hearing between using the term like under-recognized or a preferable term like under-recognized as opposed to underrepresented, while using a term like underrepresented may be true, it is more a focus on a symptom of a problem, which, as you mentioned, is a empirically proven, so proven by research and data, cognitive bias that it sounds like many people have, maybe maybe all people based on enculturation and social conditioning. You're nodding. So is that is that a general yes, yes, statement? Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So I would say that um, to be safe, I would say most people have. <laughs> Um, again, because behavioral science is an interesting tradition in that who they do research on and where that research is done is often pretty limited, often very much happening in the Western world. Um, and so so as much as I can say, most folks in the Western world are dealing with this to a certain extent. It's likely happening elsewhere, but I haven't read any studies necessarily to uh, to prove that beyond the shadow of a doubt. Right. So there's this tendency that many people have, especially if we're talking about like the West or modern America or North America and probably parts of Europe too, to overlook and undercredit who? People of color, women, women of color. Is it is it all marginalized identities? Yeah. So intersectional. Honestly, yeah. So honestly, it's it's all of the above. Right. So any the way that I describe this is anyone who deviates from what Audre Lorde called the mythical norm, right? Um, and the mythical norm was generally um, somebody who was white, male, straight, well-off, able-bodied, um, thin, um, goodness, um, did I Probably mention- educated. Educated. Did I mention socioeconomic status, right? Like, uh, like I did well off, right? Um, and well positioned, as in they are gainfully employed, um, air quotes. Uh, so that's that is what Audre Lord defined as the mythical norm, right? Um, and all sort of deviations from that norm are folks who would fall under what I call underrecognized or who come from underrecognized communities. Now, I think that there's an interesting discussion to be had about whether or not underrecognized is limited to um, visible minorities, which is a term that I learned recently and evidently is used a lot in Canada, um, or if it's a wider spectrum of experience. I think that's an interesting discussion, um, not necessarily one I'm ready to have right now since <laughs> I'm still doing research, but that's generally that's generally what I mean when I say underrecognized. Yeah, and so. Using a term like underrepresented would, it sounds like to me, Chloe, again, like while accurate, like people from marginalized experiences are underrepresented, it, it, is it fair to say that using a phrase like underrepresented affirms the ideas that keep those quote unquote mythical norms centered in the conversation? So in, in yeah. other words, when we talk about underrepresentation, 
we're we're talking about people from marginalized identities or experiences um, as being as we're like othering that I'm speaking as a white man here, of course, othering yeah. them from my expectation of a mythical norm. And therefore Pre- it yes. seems to be like, yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, no, precisely, precisely. Right. So like there, there are, again, we're, there are layers to this, right. But there is of course the, the, um, the overarching sense that saying underrepresented, okay. Like underrepresented as opposed to what, right. Um, and when you ask that question, as opposed to what, usually it's, oh, as opposed to the mythical norm, right? And so that does center that mythical norm in a way that's not necessarily healthy or paradigm shifting in the ways that we want it to be, especially from a behavioral standpoint. Um, and that also brings me to the the piece that I found folks often, um, they have to get through my article and do a few passes before this this particular point clicks. And it's the idea that underrepresented actually puts us in the wrong frame of mind, right? Um, And that's because when you hear underrepresentation is the problem, your answer to that is then, oh, okay, cool. Insert Black woman here, right? Or insert a queer person here, right? And the problem is solved, right? But of course, any any underrecognized person will tell you that, no, the problem is not solved. And in case what any in fact, what often happens is that that person is tokenized. They um, face ambition penalties and um, a sort of paradox where they are put into a position where they have more power. And I say this with air quotes, even though people can't see me doing them, right? Where they ostensibly have more power in the situation, um, but in actuality, they don't, right? Because their peers won't listen to them. Their peers continue to other them or underrecognize them, um, and their peers continue to um, penalize them for. It's sort of like a darn if you do, darn if you don't, right? Like if if this underrecognized person behaves in the same way that their peers do, um, there's backlash there, right? If they don't and they behave in their own sort of vernacular, the way that in which they're familiar with behaving they get backlash for being different, right? And so there's there's this this paradox that they face when they're put in that position, right? And so often the insert person here solution isn't an actual solution. It's just sort of shifting, I don't know, shifting the pieces on the click part. Yeah, like moving the goalpost. So here's what I'm hearing, Chloe, and tell me if I'm if I've got this right. Cause it makes a lot of sense instinctively when I hear you say that that um under representation is a is a symptom of the problem and being under using a term like under recognized shifts the conversation and i'm hearing that that phrase moving the goalpost so if the metric that we're using to assess like the success of um diversity inclusivity and belonging in in society or in a workplace if the metric is representation so underrepresented uh then one's visibility or physical presence would quote unquote be enough. Like that's the goal to reach is someone just being there. If the goal is recognition, it's not just about a socially marginalized person being there, but actually being valued. And that feels like a huge shift. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. And I will, I will say that often Folks will, you know, like leaders and execs who don't necessarily know any better will, um, and I'm thinking about this in the context of, you know, larger organizations, because that's who I wrote this piece to, but this happens everywhere, um, that they will, they will focus on the numbers, right? They will focus on the on metrics, right? Um, and not only will that put that under-recognized person in an increasingly precarious position, one one in which they have to beat the odds, again, mind you, right? Because they've already beaten the odds to get into that position, but then they have to beat the odds again without the support to do so, right? Not only does it put them in that precarious position, but then on top of that, it invites backlash. Um, And that is often why you'll hear... 
and I was, I'm not necessarily sure that I've seen this said publicly, but in private conversations that I've had with behavioral scientists, they will talk about why um, DEI and belonging initiatives aren't necessarily having the um, the kind of behavioral changes that we want to see, often because they're not taking into account the fact that it's behavior change that needs to happen, not necessarily just a representation thing, right? And I say that fully well knowing that, um, one, I'm not a DEI expert. I did work in the field, but I'm not, that's not my, my thing. Um, and two, that this is probably also not something that um, very well seasoned DEI folks are unaware of, right? And so I'll I'll put all those caveats out there, but but yes, to get to the long way of, of answering your question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so let's let's follow that thread, Chloe, because we you know, I we're ostensibly here to talk about this idea of backlash. And in a recent conversation um that I had with with two podcasters and authors who go by the moniker of the Kinswomen, I did bring in some research um that I learned through them about um the pushback and the drop-off in DEI efforts, especially that spikes, you know, astronomically in 2020 in light of the murder of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, DEI consultants or positions are being um, eliminated sometimes by companies or corporations that are saying that it's necessary cost-cutting because of the economy. I have a, I have a few bones to pick with that idea. Um, just generally speaking, I think it's an excuse to cut things that make people uncomfortable uh, more than more than anything else. But so let's let's start to bridge in this conversation about woke backlash and backlash in general as a behavioral response to something. So historically, if we think about this pattern, as I've learned from you in the past, there's a pattern to to a, a to a group behaviors. Um, or groups behaving in a way that leads to backlash against what? So like, what is it exactly if we're talking about woke backlash that people who are, you know, kind of like behind of or participating in, in this cultural phenomenon, what is it that they're like reacting to? And can we start to break that down a little bit? Because it's a really big idea. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. So um, I think this is where it is helpful to bring in the idea of um, disability biases and some examples of what those may be, right? Yeah, so, let's let's talk about that. And I don't mean to interrupt you, but you did mention earlier, and I, I don't want to make you repeat yourself, but you mentioned visibility bias um, as, as this phenomenon of, like you said, cognitive bias. So something that happens typically unconsciously, which conditions us to overlook people and experiences in a certain way. And that's been proven by research. There's also the idea of racial attention deficit, which we could probably bridge in and talk about too. But between those two ideas, uh, educate us a little bit about what comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So the racial attention deficit is actually a visibility bias, right? It's a kind of visibility bias. And it comes out of research from 2021. Um, and these researchers were able to empirically demonstrate that white Americans are 33% more likely to overlook their Black peers. And that's even when they've been incentivized to pay attention to those peers and when they know that that Black peer has information that might help them with a pressing problem, right? So when both of those things are true, the deficit in attention is 33%. Um, and again, this I mean, this study is incredible for what it was able to demonstrate, but I also want to bring out the fact that it was necessarily limited, right? So it was just looking at white Americans versus black Americans. It didn't look more globally. It didn't look at intersectionality or anything like that, um, which also definitely shifts the percentage as far as the attention deficit is concerned, right? Um, and in fact, the the only real way in which they sort of address gender is by saying that they didn't see a demonstrable difference between white men and white women in terms of the the 33%, essentially, right? Um, so, so that's the racial attention deficit, right? And that is the status quo, right? Like that's the default. That's how most of us, right, with a caveat, that's how most of us have been conditioned to be. Um, but that's that's the status quo, right? And so... I bring that up to say that, one, this study was only done 
online, right? And so if you are in person, that number is likely higher. I know that there are going to likely be some underrecognized folks who are listening to this podcast and they will likely feel like, mm, anecdotally, that number is higher. Trust that instinct because chances are it is, right? That 33%, I would say, is a sort of minimum, right? And this, there are dozens and dozens and counting of visibility biases just like these that sort of proliferate and build up over time to cause under-recognition, right? Now, I bring all that up because what's happening when we're talking about woke backlash or really backlash of any kind is the, the behavioral fact that the status quo, the default, defends itself always and, off, and often with violence if necessary, right? And that comes from a behavioral concept known as reactance, right? That when somebody feels like they are being manipulated, right? Or when behavioral interventions seem too obvious or too in your face, right? Likely people will start to squirm at that. They won't like the feeling. And often that will lead to reactance where someone will just go in the other direction. And so when we talk about woke backlash, that's just reactance, that's just reactance happening on a massive scale. And reactance is something that if you are looking at things from a behavioral perspective, you are always expecting reactance of some sort. In fact, you are trying to develop your interventions to avoid reactance, right? Because that's a, a, always a potentiality. What I'm hearing, Chloe, is that from a behavioral point of view, so research or studying a group of people, it sounds like you're always expecting there to be reactance, that there's something that seems fundamentally, I was going to say human, but is it just fundamentally social to like any social creature? Is this, I don't know if that we can bring in like any research about non-humans or like from the animal kingdom or whatnot, but either way, it's almost, it's, I don't want to distract myself or you from that, but <laughs> there's another conversation for another time, but it sounds like there's always this expectation that reactance will will occur and or so can occur i will or, say or can occur okay so so not it's always a possibility but it doesn't mean it's always going to happen exactly what i what came to mind for me first uh, as an example was um backlash against the covid-19 pandemic whether whether lockdown measures or like vaccination and vaccination mandates from employers and things where it felt like there were people who were just reacting because they were being told to do something. And it wasn't even, I mean, there were, there were, there's a wide range of reasons why somebody was, why somebody would be opposed to um, a vaccine mandate from their employer. Um, could be health reasons or health concerns or general fears, justified or unjustified. Um, just, a, but then there was like the camp of like personal choice. And you mentioned like feeling like they're being manipulated or told what to do. And that evokes very, American ideas and like science fiction, dystopian future, being manipulated by Big Brother and all sorts of things, which sometimes are very valid, sometimes maybe not as much. But it sounds like there that's the kind of like impulse and reaction that that can exist and from like you said, from a behavioral perspective can occur. So when it comes to woke backlash, how much of this would you say it can be attributed to um people who are unconsciously attempting to defend what they've known as a status quo, which is that w what? That uh, we're all inherently colorblind and created equal uh, because the Constitution says so. So I kind of want to tie it into like, where, where are the ideas coming in for you from a research point of view? Um, is there a way to quantify or explore like where the reactivity comes from, or is it more just understanding this phenomenon existing and what, what the value is of that? What comes up for you? Yeah, yeah. So honestly, it's a little bit of both, right? I haven't personally done any research into like proportion-wise how much of this reaction is in fact reactance, right? I haven't. And the reason that I haven't done so 
for, you know, there's aside from <laughs> being busy, right, is the fact that woke backlash in and of itself is is complicated, right? It's not only reactants. Um, and I'm not even sure I'm 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 equipped to say that it is primarily reactants, right? There is also this other element of disinformation and misinformation, right? Um, and uh, we we can and definitely should, I think, talk about those elements and how they play in and what what um, behavioral science and network analysis can show us about those things, right? Um, but I think that when it comes to like your your friendly neighbor down the street, <laughs> right, or um, somebody who doesn't necessarily have um, a deep awareness of the dynamics, be they power dynamics, be they something else that are sort of working around them and and pushing or pulling them in certain directions, right? So when we're talking about like the average everyday person, right? Um, I think that the proportion of reactants is likely to be higher than it would be with, say, a a politician than I'm sure people could name who is sort of instigating that sort of thing, right? So it's it's complicated by those those facts, those realities. Um, what's the second part of your question? <laughs> well, I guess I was kind of curious if if w- w- as we parse apart what happens with 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 woke backlash itself or a phenomenon like it if there's any way of actually knowing you know in an ideal world i think it would be really interesting to have a percentage of like this group of people are just reacting because you know in other words like what are the reaction what are the sources of the reactivity uh, of the reactants and it sounds like there's no way of really knowing what that could be because from a research perspective and i am far from a researcher but you know, you'd have to have people be like honest about disclosing what they actually feel or the information, what they self-report to be accurate. But generally speaking, it sounds like the phenomenon of something like woke backlash can be instigated from a number of different feelings, ideas, and sources from a group and behavioral point of view. And you did, Chloe, mention that there's a role of disinformation and misinformation. So primarily, it sounds like on social media, but also probably traditionally through traditional media. And I wonder if if we can go in that direction because I want to hear a little bit more about um, from you. I know you've you've looked into uh, how like old school advertisers prioritized advertising in a certain way and how that's what that's done. So let's pick up with like taking this look at a pattern of history and how how um, information, misinformation and like homogeny of a group. So like this the the sameness of a group can be exploited for people who have different interests. What comes up for you when you when you're thinking about that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is something that like just it fills me with so many feelings. Oh, um, it fills me with so many feelings. In fact, okay, I want to pause, hold on, said feelings, go back to what you were saying before, and like close that particular loop and say that. Um, <coughs> excuse me, that a study to figure out you know, what what proportion is reactance, what people are reacting to um, based on the kind of, you know, the, the group that they belong to versus not, right? Something like that would be possible. It would be a humongous study. It would require a tremendous amount of resources. It would require experts uh, asking the right kinds of questions, right? Because you have pointed out, um, as, you, as you pointed out, and it was an excellent point to mention, that, you know, when people are self-reporting, you can't, you rarely can trust exactly what they say, even if they think that they are being completely honest with you, right? And so the questions would have to come from a behavioral perspective so that you'd be able to translate what it is they're saying to understanding what's actually happening underneath that, right? So it would be possible. It would be humongous, (laughs) right? Um, So that's what I would say about that. Um, Coming over to this thing that I have so many feelings about. Um, yeah. So, um, where do I where do I begin here? So, what what I will say is that this information that I'm about to share is not necessarily new, 
but it is something that I think has only really been made explicit semi-recently. And I think that the best example of, you know, folks who are looking to read up more on um, network analysis and this, you know, this kind of stuff um, would do well to look at um, just about anything by Damon Santola, um, who I found mentioning, I found myself mentioning on just about every podcast I've been on. He barely knows who I am. It's fine. I'm, <laughs> I have a massive nerd crush on him, but he wrote this great book called Change, um, which is really excellent primer on uh, network science and network analysis and how networks work. Um, so <clears throat> preface it off by saying that if you want to learn more, definitely look at his work. Now, disinformation and misinformation is a tactic that is as old as time, right? This is something just about, good heavens. Um, I mean, leveraging, leveraging visibility biases and reactants and, um, and just sort of like the ways in which communities are shaped to, to create disinformation and echo chambers within which that disinformation can spread and then go on to become more innocent misinformation is something that I have traced back to just about every genocide <laughs> I have ever studied or worked directly on. Um, because that's, that is what is required in order for I mean, murder at that scale to occur, right? That the the other has to be so othered and the groups have to be so inoculated in that disinformation that the behavior of harming people at that level becomes possible, becomes the the, the path of least resistance, right? Um and so I say this, I say that as somebody, like, I'm not to exaggerate, not to put too fine a point on it, right? But as somebody who has studied this and has worked on um, civil wars and interstate conflicts and worked with refugees and um, worked very closely with what happened with the um, the Rohingya in Myanmar slash Burma, um, so this is this is not something that I speculate. This is something that I that I know. Um, now, in in applications that are maybe uh, no less innocent, but probably less um, gr- grand, maybe uh, that might not be the best word. Look no further than advertising, right? Um, back in the day um, when. Most of us got our information from a few news sources on TV, right? Um, advertising companies would take advantage of that sort of captive audience and say, okay, well, you, a television company, what does your audience look like, right? How homogenous is this audience? And they would ask questions like that because they knew that if they had a homogenous audience to work with, they could then come up with a plan, a strategy of attack to um, to encourage that homogenous group to buy their widget or their wares or whatever it happened to be, right? Um, and that that was easier to do if the group was homogenous, Um they may not have had the science to explain why, um, or they may have, right? Who knows? But they knew that it worked and that it was easy. And so that's what they did. And that gave stations and news programs and that sort of thing the incentive to curate increasingly more homogenized segments or groups or audiences, right? Um in fact, I am willing to bet that that is where the sort of divergence in um, cable news came from, right? Where 
um, these stations realized, okay, we can make a lot more money through these advertisers if we have a very concrete, very homogenous group of people, right? And it is easier for us to do that if we are less general. And so I think that's where the, um, forgive me for mentioning names here, right? But that's like, that's the direction that Fox News went in. I think that's the direction that MSNBC went in. Um, to a certain extent, CNN sort of plays with that. But um, but I think that that's where that, that, that divergence comes from. And the reason that that works is because when you have a let's say a not necessarily a tightly knit group right but a group of people who are all connected to each other i i I want you to sort of imagine a fishnet if you will um and at each connecting point of the fishnet there's like a little dot and that dot represents a person right so just imagine if you will um a network of people who are connected in that way right they know their own inner circle and their inner circle knows other inner circles within that network and all just sort of spreads out, right? Chances are insanely high that in that fishnet-shaped network, folks are homogenous. It doesn't always happen, right? But often that is the case. And recent network analysis work, especially work from Damon Santola, is showing us that that fishnet shape of a network is actually the most conducive to behavior change, especially behavior change at scale, right? Um, and that other network shapes that we might be familiar with, sort of like the uh, the influencer network shape where there's like one person at the center and they're connected to a whole bunch of different people, right? That network shape is not as conducive to behavior change. It's more conducive to like the spreading of like if it's like a cat meme, right? Um, if you've got a cat meme, um, then that network shape is very is very um, helpful. But if you're looking at behavior change, especially complex behavior change, behavior change that might ask somebody to do something more than sit where they are or something that might go against um, previous beliefs that they might have held, um, that particular shape is really key. And that is what these homogenous segments of people look like. And that is the exact kind of segment that advertisers try to cultivate, um, that news stations of a certain sort, of a certain persuasion, try to cultivate so that they can get more of those ad dollars. Um, and then when you drop intentional engineered disinformation into that network, into that now echo chamber where behavior change can happen at scale. You have what we have now, um, which is just these separate echo chambers that exist in isolation of each other with very different ideas of what reality looks like. Um, some with disinformation, not necessarily, right, but some with disinformation that has been planted, literally seeded in that network so that it can proliferate and grow and change the behavior of folks in that network at scale. And advertisers <laughs> may not necessarily have sort of come into this situation hoping for disinformation to spread or anything like that, right? but they see the money in it, right? Because rage farming, rage bait, that makes money. That makes money. Um, and so while they may not be the instigators necessarily who are planting those seeds, um, they helped set up the system that allowed for that to happen and now largely goad on that system so that they can continue to reap the benefits. There's so much here that we could talk about, but what I'm hearing in particular, and I want to ask a clarifying question because you mentioned the difference between like a top-down social network of like maybe being on Instagram and following an influencer who's like 
this is this is a funny meme, haha, and that's a one way to spread something of a uh, spread content or ideas of a certain nature. It sounds like the the ideas that get spread with a lasting effect. In other words, it changes people's behaviors as well as perceptions. Their social network, the shape of it, as you described, is more of a fishnet. I'm trying to understand the difference from a top-down like influencer model versus the fishnet. If we're talking specifically about like a news network, is it because the audience? Because it's you could say like, well, it's top-down because it's coming from like a station or a hierarchy to an audience. But is it that the 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 network of the audience of viewership? they connect with other viewers in a more like as a, in a more like egalitarian way like they see one another as peers in a similar mission or similar outlook and therefore the ideas that are shared are stickier and therefore change behaviors of, like throughout a wider net for that reason it's less individualized and more like tapping into a a chain reaction yeah so i would say it is something like that that when you're looking at the shape of a network that involves someone like an influencer like let's say right what you're looking at is something that's closer to a firework maybe right so there's this one point in the center and then there's a bunch of like sort of points on the outside that are all connected to this point in the center but the points on the outside aren't necessarily connected to each other right and in fact it's when they are connected to each other when they sort of make up this fishnet network that advertisers, even if they realize this is what they're doing or not, right, advertisers will see that particular influencer and their network as more profitable, right? Yeah, so there has to be Um, some pre-existing connections between members of the social group, and that's how Mm -hmm. the behavior change gets reinforced or validated and becomes more real through perception and perceptions of reality and things like that. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That's not to say that um, some ideas that, you know, are intentional disinformation don't necessarily use that influencer model. They absolutely do. Right. But what you'll notice about those ideas is that they are very, very simple. And they don't necessarily lead to people changing their behavior. It's it tends to be just more information for them. Right. And information, you know, often does not lead to lasting behavior change. Right. But if you really want to understand sort of what we're seeing in this current moment of behavior change that is happening and sustained over like almost a decade now, right, more than a decade now, right, sustained over more than a decade now, Um, and the ways in which I'm sure most people listening or many people listening are familiar with having people in their lives who, like, seemed reasonable and, like, were reasonable and then suddenly were seemed not reasonable, right, and the things that they thought and believed were or would be counter to what they believed before, but they can't necessarily see that, right? So like, I'm sure that lots of us have had experiences with that where someone believes just awful things now about, um, let's say, underrecognized people, right? Whereas before the change, right? In the before times, right? um, That's not the sort of thing that they would ever have said out loud. And truly probably is not the thing that they would say that they believed um, at the time. But now we see them not only believing it, but acting on it, right? So if we want to talk about that phenomenon, you're looking at a fishnet-shaped network. Yeah. So we're rounding towards the end of our interview time already, Chloe, but I do want to ask you, because our show is, you know, framed around this idea of a new story, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to be hearing this and feeling maybe a bit vulnerable about how we all as human beings and as social creatures are a part of networks you know, whether they're top-down kind of influencer models through our connection through social media, the reinforce, self-reinforcing echo chambers that are driven by not only algorithms learning our preferences and feeding us more of the same things or, or driving us more towards the edges of a belief system because it's more profitable for advertisers, as you discussed. Um, because we also just have social networks and social networks are really important 
I wonder what you would advise as a behavioral scientist, what would you advise a listener to be able to do to discern or become more aware of the ways in which they can be influenced to like to, you know, just to, how do we increase the awareness? If it's not just dumping information on people that, that changes behavior, how do we empower folks to be more perceptive to these potential behavior changes because it feels like everything is so plastic and malleable and our technology and our ways of life are like driving, driving us to, to think differently and feel differently all the time. Is it just about turning off the phone and stop listening to your podcast? Um, what do we do? What do we do about it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I would say that this has this, the answer to this question has a few different layers, as always. Um, so I think the first thing I would say is that the the quality of your inputs, right? So like the the whether or not that is the information that you're getting, right? Because for good or for ill, that does shape your perception of things, even if it doesn't necessarily lead to behavior change, right? Or the people around you, right? The 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 the, the different um, folks that make up your social network. Those inputs are things that you want to start assessing more um, judiciously, right? You want to be more judicious about that. Um, I. I often, when I am, when I'm working with clients, right, maybe, maybe let's make this more concrete, right? When I'm working with clients, um, often they are concerned about um, triggering the sort of things that we've been talking about, right? That they are folks who are inevitably going to be more visible, right? Um, and they are they're concerned about what that means in the networks that they are currently a part of um, and what they're putting out there, right, as a result. Um, and they're worried about, like, the, the, the reactions, the reactants and everything else that, that leads up to that, right? And so what I would, what I tend to do with my clients is that in order to figure out what interventions, for lack of a better word, will help us avoid those things, that you want to map out, you want to map out the behaviors, you want to map out your network, map all of these things out so that they are not just in your head, they're in front of you, right? And the thing that helps when it comes to mapping out your network, right, is that you then get to see or get to assess a little bit more objectively, okay, the quality of my inputs, right? Is this is this the kind of person who is spreading ideas that might be problematic or believes those things, right? And if that's so, at least now I'm aware of it so that I can now start developing strategies for dealing with that and not allowing that to sort of enter through a back door, right? I think another thing that I tend to do with clients um, is something I call an inertia map. And that's, we're mapping out behaviors, right? And we're looking at possible points of friction where reactants might be triggered, where various visibility biases might be triggered and other cognitive biases, right? If you map those things out, then it becomes a lot easier for you to map out plans around them, right? So that's, I think, very generally <laughs> the first thing that I would say. Um, I would also say, and I'm, I'm right now sort of looking up my notes on this really great, I know Twitter, what? But it was a Twitter space that I joined. Um, and there were these experts on uh, disinformation who were speaking, right? There's this really common disinformation tactic that is used called just asking questions or jacking us, right? Um, and they uh, spoke about um, what that was, where it comes from, why it's effective, and how you can um, overcome it. And so... Um, so one of them mentioned somebody named Ben Nimmo. And so I definitely suggest folks looking him up because he came up with these four, this, this framework 
that talks about four different ways in which people will try to leverage disinformation specifically, right? Um, and I'm looking at my notes. I hope these are correct. Um, that they will either try to distract, dismiss, distort, or divide. Um, and that once you are aware of which of those things are happening, then you can navigate around those things. Those might be the wrong Ds. I'm not sure these, these are all notes, but um, but that's that's just a long way of saying that, okay, you're aware now. And from a behavioral science standpoint, what would be the most helpful is having systems around you that will make having these assessments the path of least resistance, right? And those systems will look something like what I spoke about, right? Mapping out your network graphically so that it's in front of you, mapping out the behaviors of various stakeholders in your life, right? And seeing using seeing where various friction and um, reactance and other cognitive biases may pop up, right? Or what I call an inertia map. And then um, including in that inertia map, the ideas of disinformation, right? And um, those four Ds that Ben Nimmo came up with, right? Um, because those tools and having those systems in place not only makes it easier for you to guard against the stuff yourself, but then it also gives you empathy, right? And it allows you to then figure out how to, and this is not your job necessarily, right? But like if there's someone in your life that you want to rehabilitate or like bring back or whatever it happens to be, right? If you understand the kind of disinformation that they've been fed or, you know, the, you know, what's the friction that exists around them, right? Then you can, you can start working on gently disentangling those things. I think what conclusions I'm drawing, Chloe, and thank you for all of that. I think there's the element of being able to kind of become more aware and safeguard yourself by learning about how information and behavior change spreads, which is very complex, but also I find super interesting. And I think anybody who's listening who's interested in these stories, perceptions, and ideas that shape their worldview is going to find an interest in this next step, which is understanding how information and feelings and stories disseminate through social networks and through um, the information sources that, that are in their pockets that maybe they take for granted as being is really permeating their attention span every day, but also being aware that the, there's not a binary of people are either like on your side or against you. There's a lot of gradients and that empathy is really important to remember that people aren't just like breaking bad and turning evil. It's not the whole world that is just believing in all these terrible things or, or going against your worldview, that there's reasons why it's happening. Sometimes it's very deliberate from decision makers. Sometimes it's just the product of where the money flows and remembering that I think is really an important story for us to remember. So Chloe, uh, and Chloe Nwangu, she's a behavioral strategist, brand visibility expert, and the director of NobiWorks. You can find Chloe and uh, much of her work and her service offerings at nobiworks.com. That's N-O-B-I works.com. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us and for this deep and enriching education. Can't wait to speak to you again. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. We're so happy that you're here. We hope you're enjoying and benefiting from these intellectually stimulating, cerebral conversations. Uh, we also hope you find them uplifting and entertaining in their own way, too. If you're enjoying our work, please share this podcast with a friend or leave us a rating and review, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. You could just click through, see where it says the new story is with Dave Ursillo. Scroll down to the bottom on Apple Podcasts and give us that five-star rating to help others know that our work is truly worth listening to. And we thank you for your support. Until next time, my friend, thank you again for listening. Story on. Stay well. Bye for now. <laughs>